Hey everyone and welcome back to CDY Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host Max Bowen and once again folks we are diving into the horror treasure trove. I am very excited about this because this book has really really got me hooked. It's recently released, it's called Holy Ghost Road. Check it out, you're not going to regret it. And joining me now is author John Mantooth. He is the award winning author of two novels and a short story collection, his first novel, The Year of the Storm, nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. That's about as good as it gets, guys, I think. Pretty much. Uh, John, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Uh, thank you, Max. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. I appreciate you asking me. All right. So we're going to dive, of course, into the story itself. But I want to first talk about the book cover because, you know, I see a lot of covers. This one is sticking with me because it is damn terrifying. Who did this, and what was the thinking behind how it was going to look? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll mention it. It's Cemetery Dance, where the book um, is, is from. Um, the editor, Kevin Lucia, Lucia um, has given a lot of freedom uh, to me to, to choose things. And, and he asked me, you know, straight up, he said, you know, who do you want to do this cover? And I, I thought I'd always wanted a, a Matthew Robert cover. He's, he's the guy that did it. And uh, I had seen his covers on many other books and always admired them so i said can you get can you get matthew and and um he reached out to him and he was free and um he just came up with i thought i think his to me his talent as an artist is really kind of getting not so much at the plot of a book or like at a character but just really getting the feel of the book and and i really just when i saw it i was like yeah they're, they're this this sort of desolate uh, I mean, you can't you can't really tell if that's a house or a barn or what what that is on the cover, um, and, and and there's there's a sense of I think movement too because it's sort of a travel a travel novel and I just I just thought he nailed it so I've been super pleased with it and and likewise super pleased with Cemetery Dance. Oh yeah, um, yeah we've we've uh, we've talked to so many writers who uh, who are part of that company and and of course Kevin, longtime friend of the show. Is this your first time working with Cemetery Dance? It is, yes. Um, I, I've known Kevin for a while, just kind of through the writing community, um, but I've never, this is my first time working with him, yes. How did he come to um, your attention? Wow. Uh, so I think Kevin, I first sort of got to know him through Facebook. I'm not even on Facebook anymore, but years ago, I think he, he had said some kind things about some of my books and um, stories and that sort of thing, and we... We, we talked a little bit in that that regard and um, I almost uh, sort of inside story about this book is we um, we so we had tried to sell it um, to several places and we sort of had a almost like a deal and at the last minute I realized I was sort of out of the loop and didn't realize that cemetery dance was publishing new novels now but I, I saw that and I was I talked to my agent I was like hey we haven't officially made this other deal have we and he was like, well, no, not officially yet. I'm still trying to, you know, negotiate. And I said, well, can we reach out to Kevin and see if he'd be interested in it? And and he was. And so I think it worked out for the best because I I think I would not going to mention other publishers name. There's, they were great. But I, I'm glad it ended up with Cemetery Dance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Uh, going back to the cover for um, for a second. Are you the kind of person that uh, that a book cover is enough to kind of sell you on it, or do you have to actually read it before you decide? Yes, I'm going to buy it. Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of maybe, maybe at times. Um, I can think of um, 
there's a cover. Um, I don't know if you've read any Craig Davidson's work. Um, he also writes under Nick Cutter, um, who he wrote The Troop and um, some uh, other books are escaping. But anyway, he's got a novel called The Saturday Night Ghost Club. And I kept seeing that cover. I think it was the cover and the title. I kept seeing that cover. And I was just like, eventually, I was like, I, I love this cover so much. I love this title so much. And I ended up reading it. I love the book, too. It's, it's one of my favorites. But not, I would say not usually, but occasionally when that right combination between a cover and a title just hits me just right. But usually I'm kind of more word of mouth. You know, if I hear about somebody or read about a, a book that sounds interesting to me. So I can, it definitely affects I can think of one time I was at a Barnes and Noble and I oh. was in the horror section and I just see this book called The Hatching. And I was like, okay, you know, that's an interesting like looking uh, looking title. And I checked the cover. I was like, oh, this is really good. And this book um, was done by Ezekiel Boone. And it's definitely one of my favorite horror stories. And just from the cover, I was like, yep, I'm buying this thing. I don't even care what it's about. It looks good. Yeah. So and it turned out. It turned out really good, yeah. I think yeah. it's like a, th- a three-part series, and I just like as soon as he released, I'm like buying it, buying it, buying it. So it- it's funny because the old saying is, of course, don't judge a book by its cover, but that can be the thing that either sells the book or keeps it on the shelf. So you always gotta think about what you want the book to uh, look like. Um, now, yeah. So um, when you were working on this one, was there any like back and forth? We saw a draft, which I also liked. But the draft um, was a little bit more on the nose, I thought, in terms of like it was it was a uh, if I, were, I can't remember. I remember thinking it was just a little too much like a a church, or I think the, the building looked like more like a church. And while that is significant in the book, um, I felt like with the Holy Ghost Road, the Holy, and then the church, I thought people might get think it was more of a religious book which it definitely has some religious aspects to it um, but it's it's at its heart I think a horror novel so I think we did we did ask one time if you know because he no I think I remember he had he had that and then he said I have other versions too and so we asked to see the other versions and and I think the one we ended up with was one of those other versions and then there was still a few minor tweaks like about the you know where where some of the text was and that sort of thing yeah very cool all right, yeah. so let's talk story now because this book really has a great, I felt had had a really great pacing to it. So this is all about uh, this one guy, Pastor Naismith. Uh, he's sort of become the go-to person in this community. He's more or less just become like the religious guy. His, his, his your church is full. Everyone like goes there. Everyone's part of it. But he's also praying to some kind of like demonic entity, which which um, Forrest, who is like the main character, she sees this and basically bolts to find her grandmother, who's pretty much the only person who can do anything about it. And yeah, one of the things that there's really a couple of things that caught me. One is that this book really begins kind of with a lot of things already established, you know, like we, like we do, we do get the backstory as we progress, but we almost begin kind of in the middle ish. I'm curious why you want to start at this point. I don't know that if I have a good answer for that, I will tell you this, that um, the book, when I started writing, it did not begin with that scene. It actually began a few chapters. What ended up being a few chapters later, I just sort of had this idea of this girl teenage girl that was on the run from something and and I kind of 
I guess I saw the scene of her being on the run and, and I didn't at the time even know what was chasing her, but I kind of saw that first. And that's usually how a lot of stories begin for me is sort of just through like an image or something like that. And then I, I try to start filling in how we got to that point. And so, uh, I wrote that scene out and I realized that there was a, a man and a woman, um, that were pursuing her. And, and then I just sort of let that sit for a while. I was working on, it was sort of just sort of like one of those things you have. I was working on another book, but I was just like, Oh gosh, this is just something I feel like I need to write down. And I sort of let it sit for a while, but I kept thinking about it. I liked the voice of it and I eventually abandoned the book I was working on and came back and said, okay, what's the story and sort of backed it up a little bit. So why is she on the run? And I came up with the the reason she was on the run was what she had witnessed or, or what she thinks she's witnessed in the barns. There's some ambivalence about that throughout the book, um, whether she was sleepwalking, whether she was dreaming, whether she was awake, um, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly why I chose that point to start it. I guess it's just one of those things. It just felt like, you know, here's where it starts and um, we can fill in the rest as we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I love the just intensity from where this thing begins. You know, she is just like out that door on the run because she's seen what she's seen. She's seen, she's seen you know, the good pastor summoning this like goat headed demon. And, yeah. um, you know, she and, and she's totally like on her own. You know, she's got no car. She's got no phone. Uh, no one to really rely on except for except for Granny, who really seems to be on top of what's happening. Because who is yeah. her grandmother and what role does she ultimately play in the story? Well, um, there I, I'm going to say a little bit without saying everything, because yep. there's really, I don't want to I don't want to you know spoil or whatever um, where it goes. But uh, her grandmother is sort of her closest uh, relative. Um, Forrest's family situation is not great. Um, her, her father uh, died. And before she could really remember him, her brother uh, was a lot older than her and ended up going into the military because a lot of people in that community, they sort of see that as a way out of, of bad situations. And but he went from one bad situation to another worse situation over there. And when he came back from the Middle East, um, he was, you know, I guess cliched. He was a shell of himself. Um, and then there's her mom who, uh, is basically looking for anything good in her life and gets sort of taken advantage by this pastor, um, who then moves in with them essentially. And, um, I forgot your question. <laughs> I just started rambling a little bit. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, it grandmother, was, yep. grandmother. Yeah. So the grandmother is her, um, I mean, they're, they're close and they, they also share a connection. Uh, through this uh, dream walking. And that's sort of what uh, the grandmother teaches Forrest is called because her family wants to tell her you're just sleepwalking. But her grandmother says, no, it's more than that. It's, it's dream walking. It's more powerful than sleepwalking. You can see things as they really are. So there's that aspect, that mystical kind of connection between her and her grandmother that maybe um, maybe her dad had it too, but we don't know because her dad, this is her dad's mother. Her, her dad died at a you know, before she could remember him. So um, in her mind, in Forrest's mind, her grandmother, who lives on the other side of the county and across the river, um, is the only person that has the power 
uh, and the knowledge and the courage to stand up to Naismith because Naismith is obviously involved in some sort of dark, dark arts as well. And so it's sort of a race to get there. And then I don't want to talk about exactly what happens when she does get there. Gotcha. Oh, no, we, we gotta, we gotta keep the story a secret folks. You want to go out and buy the book. Um, now I want to ask more about Naismith because from what I read, I definitely got this vibe of this like televangelist, but also this kind of like old timey preacher, you know, who, who would kind of show up in these like desolate towns and just sort of become these, this like charismatic magnet that would just draw the whole community in. I'm curious what he's based off of. Well, um, I, I, I don't know if you know, or your audience knows, but I also write under a pseudonym, Hank Early and, um, the three Hank Early books, um, are based in North Georgia and they, they sort of deal at least, especially the first one, heaven's crooked finger deals with a similar kind of idea, um, of, you know, like that charismatic, uh, preacher and the influence that that person can have. And, and I suppose that, I mean, I, I mentioned that book because I think it goes back to North Georgia where those books are set. That's where uh, my parents were from. And I spent a lot of time in the summers on holidays, sometimes spring breaks up there with my grandmother, who was very fundamentalist uh, Christian. And there were those type people around. I can remember like the pastor coming to visit her at her house and just there was just an element of I mean, he wasn't I don't I'm not trying to paint him out as like he was some sort of evil guy, but there was an element about him that that made me afraid. There was just something about them and I and I remember going to her churches and, and just being afraid and so I think that's something that as a writer and even as an adult I keep coming back to is is that fear um, that there seemed to be some sort of I don't know it, it was just it was just, I think it's just as, as a kid and, and, and they're stomping around and they're screaming about you're going to hell that just that just stayed with me and and I, I keep coming back to that I, I don't know I've had people tell me for oh another another preacher, you know, in, in your book. So, um, it, I don't know. It's a, it's a theme I return to. Yeah. Um, so. Religion definitely has a role to play in your books. Yes, I think so for sure. I mean, it, it's, you know, I was, I was raised, um, pretty, pretty fundamental. I mean, fundamentalist may not be the right word. I guess I guess say conservative Christian, um, in, in the eighties and, and, you know, my, a lot of my adulthood has been sort of, dealing with that and, and deciding what I believe and where I stand. And I've, I've, I've left behind a lot of that, if not all of that, but I still believe in something and that's fascinating to me. And I think that's where, uh, you know, at the heart of a lot of my fiction is, is that idea of, you know, is there something out there beyond us? And is that something that, that we can believe in and that, that is, is helpful to us that is, you know, that we have a connection with and, I think that you, in, in Holy Ghost Road really deals with that um, as the book continues. Um, and we see forced, you know, trying to determine what what is this ghost, this Holy Ghost that her grandmother talks about. This question may sound a little obvious, but I'm curious, is Pastor Naismith a bad guy or is he just a misguided person? I think I would say he's more of a bad guy, honestly. I mean, it might be more interesting to say that he was just misguided. And I guess every bad guy and could be seen as misguided, but I think his intentions are, I think he knows what he's doing. I'll just put it that way. I don't think he's fool. If he's fooling any, I mean, he may be fooling himself, but it, 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 
at his heart, he he's trying to accomplish something. <laughs> And, and it, it's not a good thing. So I wouldn't say he was misguided. Yeah, I, I guess the whole summoning a demon thing is pretty obvious. I guess that's sort of like, you, 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 like you don't just accidentally, oops, whoopsie-doopsie, summon a demon, my bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, although I think it could be interesting to to play with the idea of summoning one and you just didn't know how bad it could get or what you were messing with. No, I don't think that's him. I think I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah, and it was really cool, interesting, uh, seeing how he just sort of took over the whole community. Like, everyone's part of his worship group. How does this kind of thing happen? How, you know, how does a pastor manage to basically ring the whole town into his life? I, I don't know. I, I guess I asked myself that question with, how does how does it happen with politicians, too? But, but you see it, especially here in the South. I mean, the area where... I, I base this very loosely on there is a really a highway 278. Um, but that area is very um, unified in their politics and the fact that no one, I mean, it would, I'm not going to say no one, but I'm sure there are outliers, but you basically have one political view in that area. And I don't think that's too different than we basically have one preacher who we believe in and what he says goes so mm-hmm. you, i mean we're in the south and um you probably know there's still a lot of people down here that are just huge you know huge trump supporters even at this point and and so i i mean i'm sure that was in the back of my mind because we have a we have a lake house up that way um my family does and so i go up there a lot and just am always dismayed by the propaganda that I see everywhere all over the road and all over the boats that are out on the lake. And uh, so I, I think that may have been in the back of my mind as I was kind of creating this guy a little bit too, but obviously he's an over the top fictionalized characterization. And this is a real, a real thing we're talking about now. So yeah, definitely. Is that kind of minister still around? I think so, probably. But I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't I don't have any personal. I just remember that sort of image from when I was younger mm-hmm. with my grandmother. And then my mother spent, you know, my mother was she spent most of her life trying to find a church that made sense to her, but also would please my grandmother. And that just it was an impossibility, really. Um, so so I don't know. I mean, I would guess that, yeah, there's probably still that around but i don't have any personal experience with it these days i get you i get you yeah yeah i, I do I, I i um i can remember when i was younger like sunday mornings you know like in between like like watching um you know the cartoons i would also be kind of like checking out the uh, the church shows because i was so like hooked on like man this guy is so into this he's like just you know going wild and he's got this massive church with like crowds of hundreds and you know for me church was like maybe like 60 people you know it was a small group so it's like it was interesting seeing this just this very this very powerful passionate figure and i was kind of wondering like what like like what's in their heads exactly yeah that's just fascinating i I agree i I, maybe another reason why i'm drawn to writing about those those type of figures because they they are fascinating what do they what do they really believe what what goes to their mind when they're when they're saying this stuff and and you know, manipulating people. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about the the uh, the first person viewpoint of this book because the, this is all first person through Forrest's eyes. 
I don't encounter too many horror stories that have this angle. I mean, they're they're out there, of course, but I haven't encountered too many. Why go with this? Why not the usual third person? Yeah, I agree with you. There's not as many first person. Uh, you know, the simple answer is just for me. That's what I find find to work the best. Um, voice is really important to me, and I, I'll be sometimes I'll be writing a book or an idea, writing a story, whatever it might be, and I'll start in third person, and halfway through, you know, I might have twenty five thousand words and realize this is not it's not speaking to me. I don't feel like the voice is there. And then I'll go back and change it and try it again in first person. And usually I find that's where it becomes more successful. And if I look back at all of my books that I published, um, I published six, three of them under Hank Early and three of them under John Mantooth. One of them is a collection of short stories. Now that, to be fair, there's some third person in there. There's even some second person, but there's also first. But all the novels, all five other books have been in first person. So I guess... That's just what I found works best for me. That seems to be the thing that my that my readers respond to and enjoy. Um, I don't know if it's a mistake or not, but what I'm working on right now is in third person. So we'll see if I make it through in third person or if I end up changing it to first at some point. Man, that must be like a lot of a lot of editing to to get like 25,000 words and realize you know what the the uh, the viewpoint is work for me. I had to go make his first person and then go back to the beginning and say okay, edit this, edit that, take this out, take this out. My my early especially my earlier novels went through lots and lots of revisions. Holy Ghost Road was a little bit of an exception because as I was telling you earlier like it just I don't know, the story the story came pretty easily to me. And um, and the voice, I didn't need to worry about. I knew that was the voice, and that that was pretty much there from the beginning. So it it was a little faster. I'm not to say I didn't have to do some revision and some editorial work on it and that sort of thing. My my agent, uh, Alex Shane, is a really he's really great agent in terms of helping you get your book ready to submit. And he's he's tougher than a lot of editors. So I'll usually send it to him first. And he'll uh, he'll he'll tell me exactly where he's where he's losing the plot or where he's getting bored or whatever, and he'll make really good suggestions. So he I did more editing just to kind of get it ready for him, and then once it, once we started submitting it, I don't think we did much. We did a little heck. I don't think we did anything with Cemetery Dance other than the copy editing, the line editing, and kind of cleaning it up and stuff. That's really good. I think I think it's really good that you have an editor who's that harsh about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, my first uh, Hank Early book, Heaven's Crooked Finger, it was the same experience. Um, we, we got it so ready that by the time we sold it, they were like, it's ready to go. So... You know, I was really wondering, writing, you know, crime and horror, two, I would say, very different genres, is there any crossover in terms of your writing style? Yeah, I think so. It's funny that you say that you see them as different genres. I could, I mean, for me, they're very similar. I think that always what I write could edge into one or the other. Now, with the horror, I guess the difference is the supernatural in my horror becomes more pronounced. Um, and in my crime, it's a little bit more on the fringes. But you, it's still somewhat there. Like, there are elements of the supernatural 
but I just don't go as deep and they don't get as extreme and that sort of things. So they're more like uh, stuff people might experience in real life and, and not quite understand or figure out. It's, it's maybe more of that in my crime novels. So I would say that's the major difference. Almost all of my books have a rural aspect. So that's pretty much the same in, in all of my books. And um, like I said, they're all in first person. Um, so, yeah. Which came first, the horror or the crime? I think my first love was horror for sure. Um, I grew up reading, reading uh, horror um, from my dad's bookshelf. Uh, once he, once he allowed me to start pulling from there when I was about, probably about 12. And then I never looked back on that. And crime, crime really came a little bit later when I discovered uh, James Lee Burke. He's probably my favorite crime writer. Um, reading his Dave Robichaux books, uh, I was like, oh, gosh, I could I could write something, you know, sort of like this, because uh, I like the fact that it's a very regional feel in Louisiana. And and it, and that's what I started thinking about. You know, I wonder if I could do something else sort of like that in the South. And that in a, in a large part, those inspired the the Hank Early books, those crime novels. Did writing those books require a ton of research? No, <laughs> not really. Nice. Um, nice. Uh, research is not my, uh, let me just, let me say, research is not my interest, really. I'm not particularly interested in research. So what I do when I write is I usually base things loosely. And that's the beauty of fiction. I make up most of the, most of the history. I make up most of the, and a lot of times it's based on something I've heard before, but I just make it up. That's more fun to me, more interesting. Not to say I've never had to like get details right, especially, you know, I found one of the things that is tough for me, especially when writing crime is I'm not a gun person. I don't know much about guns at all. And so I've had to contact people a lot, say, okay, read this scene where this guy, you know, is loading his gun or getting out his gun or doing this. Does this, is this the way it would work? And I've had, you know, a lot of good feedback to, you know, no, no, that's not how you do it kind of thing. And, and so I've been able to correct that, but, so with things like that, more like technical things that I know readers are going to pick up on and say, that's not how it works. I try to always research it and, and reach out to somebody who knows. But like in terms of historical stuff, even place and, and, and where things are, I just take full liberty with the fact that it's fiction and just make it up because it's more fun for me to do that anyway. This is definitely standing out in, uh, because normally the writers I speak to, they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I spent like two months researching this before I even began writing the book. So this is interesting. I like this. Maybe I should try that. I mean, look, I, look I'm still looking for, for what's going to get me <laughs> get me uh, more sales. So maybe that's what I need to do on my next book is more research. Maybe that'll pay off for me. Or I mean, I'm or, if it was the right topic. Or you could do some kind of like crossover where like Forrest, you know, is in the is in the next like Hank Early book for some reason. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hank Early, uh, supernatural detective. Hey, he's not far from it now. So oh, really? Well, you know, he, like I said, there's little there's little hints of the supernatural in there. He deals with things that he can't explain sometimes. And particularly in the second book, there's a sort of a villain that he never quite is able to catch and he it doesn't know whether this guy's a real person or what some sort of something else. Ooh. Uh, but that's left ambiguous because, and in my mind, I was going to go back to, 
book three doesn't go back to it at all. But if there is ever a book four, maybe maybe I'll revisit that. That could be kind of cool. It actually reminds me um, of Jonathan Maybear. He's one of my favorite writers, and he's done some crossovers with some of his different book series. And it's always yeah. cool to see these two worlds meet up. Yeah, I love, I love that kind of thing. Yeah, for nice. sure. So with the uh, the crime novels, was there anything that kind of like inspired you to sort of try your hand at this? I mean, like horror, you grew up with it. From a real basic perspective, a lot of it was timing because The Year of the Storm, which was my first novel, and it was a horror novel, uh, and I sold it to, to a very big publisher. I sold it to Penguin, which is like, you know, I thought at that time, like, I've got it made. You know, I'm I'm young writer, first book, Penguin, but it, it, it didn't sell at all. Like, I mean, it just sat there on the shelf. Um, you know, I could blame Penguin for not promoting it. I, I, my agent, my first agent retired right when it came out. There, there's a lot of things I could blame it on. But ultimately, for whatever reason, it didn't sell. And um, so when I was writing book number two um, and trying to sell it, People, the, the publishers were saying uh, with the, the track record on this first book was bad and they were not willing to take a chance on the second book. And so I found myself kind of at a real crossroads, you know, what to do. And 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 I just started thinking, I guess, outside the box a little bit. And I, I had been reading, like I said, a lot of James Lee Burke. And I was struggling for an idea. Where can I go? How can I get back in the pub, you know, get a book back out there? And that's when I sort of stumbled on this idea of this uh, detective uh, who whose um, father was this charismatic preacher. And the story in the first book is that well, he wasn't just a charismatic preacher. He's a charismatic snake handling preacher. And um, Earl, the main character, uh, one of the rites of passage for the men in this small community was that they had to when they came of age, they had to hold their first snake in front of the church. Well, when Earl did it, um, Earl Marcus is the main character, the detective, the snake bites him right in the face and he ends up like falling out and being out, uh, like, I guess, in a coma for for several days. And but it, meanwhile, his dad, because of his beliefs, won't let him get any medical help. It, the, the, sort of the first chapter sort of ends with with Earl saying that, you know, the worst thing happened, you know, they they prayed to God and he let me live. Um, and so the rest of his life has kind of been haunted by this experience and um, by his father. And the first book is him going back to investigate his father's death because his dad supposedly died. But a lot of his followers keep seeing him places. They're like they actually have photos of him. Here's your dad the other day. You know, he's up in the mountains. He's hiding out. He's not dead. And so it's sort of this intrigue about whether his father is dead or whether he's alive and still in, uh, exerting his influence on his followers. I don't like to ask people to pick favorites, but I am curious with the two genres, which one do you think you have more fun with? Horror, because um, that was why I came back to it, because I did I did three um, Hank Early books and my agent was sort of like, well, what's up with the fourth one? And I felt burned out on it. And, and I told him, I said, I, I really, I'm getting all these ideas that I want to write horror again. And he was like, okay, I mean, you got to do what you, what you feel like you, you can do. And so, and that's, that's where I, that's probably where I feel more at home because really 
the Hank Early books were always sort of edging that way anyway. The, the supernatural was always creeping in. The, the, the dark stuff was kind of always creeping in on that. So I, I think I like horror to write horror a little bit, but I feel a little bit more at home in that. And I know this sounds, I don't know if this is, if I should say this or not, and maybe it was just my experience, but I found that the horror community always embraced, was easier to be a part of than the crime community. And it may be, it may be a, me and my personality. It may have been the stages I was in when I was, you know, going through them, but whatever reason, I feel like I have more friends in the horror community and that they've been, they've embraced me more than, than the crime community. Which is odd because my crime books have sold way better than my horror books. I mean, that, that's yeah, Heaven's Crooked Finger has been has sold more than any other book I've written. Um, but for whatever reason, I feel more at home in the horror community. The horror community is a wonderful community. I find it's incredibly friendly because it boils down to I think it's a bunch of just fun weirdos who love <laughs> we- weird shit. Yeah, and I think a lot of us have sort of the same experiences growing up and. We have those same kind of foundational things that we read and movies that we saw and that sort of thing. And it just makes it easy to get along with people. And just generally horror people, they, they seem, they don't seem very judgmental. They just seem just friendly. Most of the ones I've met and I've been, you know, like I said, I've just been, feel like I've, I've got some friends yeah. that, that, and then my little foray into crime, I've got some friends from there too. I don't, I don't want to speak ill of the community. It's more like I just never really found my niche in that community. I never, I never felt quite comfortable. So that could be again a personality thing. I'm not the most outgoing person in the world, and sometimes I struggle um, to, you know, meet new people and and integrate myself into myself into a community. Oh yeah, I I, I hear that a lot from creatives, whether they do like you know uh, writing or comics or what have you. It, a lot of them can be very introverted, you know. So being out there, going to the conventions and the expos, is almost like, do I have to do this? Could I just stay home instead? Is that an option? It is. That's kind of what I've chosen, <laughs> and 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 it may be a, a detriment to me. I did a few, and that may be again, like I said, that may be why I have more horror. I mean, I did that early on with horror, and then I met people. But somewhere along the way, just every time I think about going to one, a new convention or something, I would just kind of feel this dread of like, I just don't, I don't want to do it. And so I just, I stopped making myself. I don't know. It's probably hurt my career somewhat. Um, I still do some things, small events around town and stuff. Like I'm doing an event in February, um, a noir at the bar. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's oh, more yeah. 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 I still do those. I find those are, you know, more my speed because there's not quite so many people that you have to kind of meet and hobnob with and that sort of thing. Um, and use that can bring my wife along, but, but I, I do struggle with, with, with social situations sometimes more just to being anxious about them. So, yeah, I, I get you. Especially, well, I think especially end. after like two years of not doing these things, they're coming back. It's like, do I have to go though? Do I, I've, I've actually found myself asking that question. Like, do we actually want to go to this thing they've gone to for so many years or did I just keep going because that was the routine I kind of got myself into. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, no, this is actually fun. I want to keep doing it. And others I've said, no, I didn't enjoy it. I, I just went because I went and fuck it. Not going back. Yeah. And sometimes that's the decision you got to make. I mean, and, and yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Right and, with you. you know, like you talk about potential damage to your career, maybe, maybe not, but it's been good for your mental health. And that has to count for that's as much. True. 
That's true. Yep. Yeah. It's been good for that. I've just sort of, I let, I let that, that go. Cause I used to stress about that all the time. Mm. I need to go to this convention. I need to go to this convention. I need to get out there and just like, you know what? I don't, I don't really necessarily. <laughs> I don't actually have to go. I could stay home instead. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I totally get you, man. Sort of the same, same, same thing for me. I used to be on Facebook and, and it would always stress me out. And I finally just, I shut that one down and I haven't missed it at all. I'm still on Twitter, but for some reason, Twitter, I know this is odd because Twitter's got a lot of crap on it, but I'm able to mostly, I don't see it. I guess the people I follow are mostly just posting about books or whatnot. And um, Twitter doesn't stress me out like uh, Facebook did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Are you done with Hank early or do you think this is going to come back someday? I was thinking about that the other day, actually. Um, You know, now that I've had a break from it and I find myself thinking about, you know, going back to that world. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, um, right now, what I'm working on is not Hank Early, uh, but when I finish this, you know, it's something I might I may think about again. Yeah. If I am done with Hank Early, I'm okay with it because I think the three books are good. I don't think I think I think if you read them, the third one sort of wraps things up a little bit. Um, so I'm okay either way. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna see what happens. There you go. All right. Um, going back to Holy uh, uh, Ghost Road, we, we talked about the first-person viewpoint. I want to talk about the pacing, too, because, you know, Forrest is basically on the run. This is this is the book. She, she's on the run. How do you keep a book like this going without kind of, like, overdoing it? I think, I think it's a bit – I think this book is a bit misleading. I think a lot of people have commented on – it being fast paced, it does start fast. And um, I think some readers have been disappointed because I don't think it's a traditional kind of fast paced kind of page turner. I did try to keep things moving a bit, but it's also a reflective book. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of forced reflecting and thinking about the world and thinking about the people in her world and what to make of, you know, just her reality. I mean, she's 15. And uh, she's trying to figure out what to believe in and what not to believe in. And honestly, the things she's struggling with in the book are some of the same things I've been struggling with in life. And um, there's that aspect, too. And um, so while I'm excited when people say it's a fast paced read, I'm glad that's awesome. That means to me, that means they, they read it fast and it, it kept moving for them. But I think also some rev- some reviews I've read from people are, are like it, it felt like it wasn't fast. It felt like it, it bogged down. And I get that too, because I don't think it's for, I don't, I think there is that reflective angle for it. To me, that's what I like in a book. I don't necessarily like a book where just everything's action all the time and everything's a plot twist all the time. That's, that's not as interesting to me. I do think there's some twist in this, especially uh, towards the end that people may or may not see coming and I and I like I can appreciate that in books and and I'm I'm sort of proud of this one. Yeah, basically yeah, just that was and that's okay with me. I mean, it's it's fast-paced is I think means different things to different people. I don't think this is a fast-paced book where it's like all plot plotted fast-paced. I think I hope there's a narrative drive to it, uh but also there's um there's some some reflective pieces in the in the book as well, I think. All right. Um, you know, you mentioned reviews, and when I was doing my research for this, I, d- I did come across a couple of reviews. You know, one was really good, one middle of the road, I would say. Do you read the reviews? 
Unfortunately, I do. I know that I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I some do. You know, some some do, and like, and, 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 and some are like absolutely fucking not. Yeah, I mean that would be the wise thing. I think I I, I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, but I, I still I still check in on reviews, and um, and but the good thing is is I don't really get upset about the bad ones. Uh, I, you know, it's not that make my day to see a bad one, but I'd like to see a good one. But, but I usually do read the bad ones and sometimes I learn from the bad ones, you know, because honestly you want people to like your book. So I, I do learn from them sometimes. Sometimes I think those people have good things to say. Um, but uh, obviously I like to read the good reviews better. It makes me, it makes you feel good. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Inspires, I encourages you. Yeah, exactly. Dating it. All right. All right, John. So what is next for you? Next for me, I should mention, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this yet, is uh, The Year of the Storm, which originally came out from Penguin in 2013. It went out of print a few years ago, and then Cemetery Dance has picked it back up, and it's coming out uh, at the end of February. A new a new edition, a uh, new cover, beautiful cover by uh, uh, Keelan Burke. Um, uh, speaking of covers, I just, I love this cover and, um, it'll be out and, uh, available again in paperback and, uh, for the Kindle. I'm not sure where Kevin wants to price it yet. I think we've talked about maybe doing like we did with Holy Ghost Road, which is maybe putting it on Kindle Unlimited, doing a sale the first couple weeks. Uh, that seemed to, you know, really get the word out on Holy Ghost Road, do like a dollar ninety nine sale uh something like that so we're still talking about that but that's coming soon i've got noir at the bar uh actually the same that same time brought it in the february here in birmingham um i have got um uh the book i'm working on now which is currently untitled um but it's a um it's a horror novel um that's probably well, no, I'm not going to say that because it, yeah, I was about to say it may have less supernatural in it, but I don't know about that. It's got some supernatural in it. But yeah, that's all I'll say about that because it's early on that book and, and it is a good chance I may, you know, write 20,000 words on it and start it over or there may be, maybe start something else. But right now it's in the very early stages. <laughs> How are you when it comes to having to, to, uh, to start over? Like you got like 20,000 words into it, you realize this isn't working. Is it tough to say? fuck it throw the whole thing out and start and like start over again it is but for me it's part of the deal i mean like that's that's probably like if i had to sum up my my process <laughs> in just a sentence or so it's 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 starting over again all the time um i don't know what it is but uh i i feel like when i'm writing i rarely get it right the first time and part of it's because outlining is not does not appeal to me I've had brighter friends tell me you got outline, you got outline. I tried it. It has no appeal to me. It's not, it kills the whole fun of sitting down to write to me. So I know that's part of it because I don't always know where I'm going. Like in the, what I'm working on now, that's why I was like supernatural not supernatural. I'm still like, it's still sort of out there. Like I know what's happened so far. I know there's possibilities where it could go. But I don't want to ruin it for myself. I like to keep those possibilities hidden from myself as long as possible um, because I just think they come about more organically through the story. And that does mean sometimes you write yourself into a corner 
or sometimes you write a bunch of stuff and go, oh, no, I realize now what this book is about. I've got to start over. So that 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 happens a lot. But I don't I don't mind it too much because that's a great feeling when you've you realize, oh, now I understand the book. Now I know where this is going and I can make this all really great or you hope you can. Do you ever like reuse old content from like a first draft in the next draft? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. I save all that stuff. Like I even have a file where I just keep it all. And I'm all the time going back and copying and paste. Oh, this would work right here. Or I kind of remember writing this description that I really liked. Oh, that was in the other draft. And I'll go find it and go plug it back in somewhere in the new draft. So, yeah, that's for sure. I love doing that. All right, John. Well, we are coming down to the end of the conversation, fortunately. Um, I'm curious when it comes to like supernatural stuff, because I'm always curious about this with horror writers. What really scares you? And does that kind of influence what you write about? The things that scare me are not particularly supernatural. I, I'm a I'm an odd horror, horror writer in the fact that a lot of my horror, it can be scary, but a lot of my horror just sort of deals with the unknown and, you know, things like that that sort of interest me. And yeah, sometimes, I, I mean, I like to have the suspense in there. I like to have the danger and stuff, but I don't think many people read my books and go like, oh my gosh, that's the scariest book I've ever read. That's just not, that's just not the kind of books they are really. Um, but what scares me in real life, and I realized this um, after I became a parent, it's just my kids, like something happening to them. I mean, that's just, that's what scared. Like I'm, I'm a nut about, and my wife will tell you, I mean, even when the kids were just playing down the street when they were young, and like they, I thought, well, they should be home by now. I would start like, where, you know, where are they? Where are they? And she's like, they're fine. They're just down the street. And I don't know if it was my imagination or having read too much horror, but just it would always go to the worst places. And like, you know, a kid can get abducted, a kid, you know, anything could happen, all this kind of stuff. So that's my fear. Luckily now my kids are, uh, one is uh, 17 and one is uh, 20. So they're sort of out of that stage, but I still, you know, now is a different fear because they're like my 20 year olds in another state now and she's sort of on her own. Um, so, you, you know, that, those are those. Sorry. That's maybe not the most interesting answer, but that's honestly what I'm afraid of. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 that's the thing I find talking to horror writers is their fears aren't like, oh, spiders or ghosts yeah. or werewolves yeah. or whatever. It's it's always thing more like, oh, losing my children, being alone, uh, fe- yeah. feeling like I like I've like failed at life. You know, it's always these very these more like yeah, emotional yeah. fears rather than the usual stuff. Um, and I but, bet a lot of those writers will channel that into their writing in in sort of more. Uh, subliminal type ways i think i think a lot of that gets put into our writing but maybe comes out through the ghosts and the monsters and that sort of thing so do you feel that fear with regards to something happening to your kids has been channeled into this book maybe maybe i mean force is a, she's basically a child at 15 mm. um i don't know it, it, you know sometimes i think books are books are mysteries to even the writers. I mean, this, and particularly this one, like I could tell you, I could talk more about what, where the, the heavens crooked finger and those books came from. This one just came more from a setting. I think, you know, driving down that 278 and seeing the things on the side of the road and, and thinking about that community. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe subconsciously some of that was there, but definitely not consciously. I wasn't really thinking about my own kids 
when I wrote this, as much as I was thinking about an area of the state that sort of fascinated me and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. All right, John. Well, I have really enjoyed talking with you and certainly loving the book, folks. If you haven't got your copy, Holy Ghost Road, it's print, ebook. You go to our friend's website, cemeterydance.com. You'll find all the information there. But, John, where do folks go if they want to learn more about you? What, what's your website, socials, all that jazz? Okay, so I'm on Twitter at uh, bus. It's a, a bus full of losers. <laughs> uh, it's an old Twitter handle that I've just kept. Um, so won't get into explaining that, but it's bus full of losers on Twitter. And really that's the best place because if you go there, you can click onto my, my link tree where I've got places where you can order my stuff. Don't really have a website anymore. Um, because I just was not good at maintaining it. Um, so I just, I moved to link tree and I think that's all you really need. You can access all my books there and some articles I've written. And if you want to learn more about me, that's, that's a good place to go. All right. John, thanks once again, and definitely looking forward to the next conversation. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Hey, guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on. And that'll bring this episode to a close. I hope you enjoy the interview and that you check out Holy Ghost Road. I'm about five chapters in, and I think you'll enjoy it too. You can follow this show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You get at me at citywidemaxyahoo.com, and this can be to be on the show, to recommend a guest, or just ask a question. I love hearing from the listeners. Find the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now. And I'll see you next time.